Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hi, fellow listeners, and welcome to episode 14 of Can I Pick Your Brain? Today, I have the honor of picking the brains of Dean Levitt ex-co-founder of Mad Mimi, an email marketing platform that was acquired by GoDaddy for, wait for it, $42 million. Dean has now launched Teacup Analytics, which provides powerful tools that helps you gain clarity with your Google Analytics data. Dean, welcome to the show and thanks for letting me pick your brain. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm literally buzzing. <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to get stuck in and learn more about how you built such a successful business. But first, I want to know more about your upbringing, Dean. Is it true that you grew up on a farm? Yes, uh, my brother and I grew up on a farm in Knopislachter, South Africa. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not going to try and repeat that <laughs> word. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's not one of the most... Uh, pronounceable words out there, but uh, it was about an hour outside of Johannesburg, and we both went to school initially in in Johannesburg, so uh, we didn't have an entirely countrified upbringing, and both of us left South Africa when we were in our late teens, around 18, 19, and went to the U.S., what was it like growing up on a farm? It was fun. There was a lot of freedom. We we spent a lot of our time just wandering around the, the farm areas. We rode motorbikes because there was no, no tarred roads. So everything was uh, it was dirt roads and, and roads would often get washed away. So so ATVs and motorbikes was the most convenient way to get around the area. And it was it was fun. We did a lot of exploring, uh, a lot of interactions with with uh, farm animals, and it was fun, relaxing, and, and definitely unusual. What kind of interactions with farm animals? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> well the, it, it was a, the area had a lot of cattle wandering around and grazing, so sometimes as kids you'd get stuck in the wrong field and, and had to run away occasionally from some irate, irate cattle. <laughs> Uh, we had jackals and snakes around the area as well that one always had to watch out for and angry geese. You can, you can never underestimate the fury of, a, of an annoyed goose. <laughs> no way. You're kidding me. A goose. Yeah, for sure. They, they actually make fantastic watchdogs. Geese are, are pretty aggressive creatures. Hmm. That's interesting. So then you – so after the farm, you said you were in your teens. You left – South Africa? Correct. Uh, Gary and I both went to Boston uh, in the United States to study music. Cool. Right. And um, that, was, that was fun too. Ultimately, we both ended up in New York City with a music production company. And it wasn't doing so well. It, it actually wasn't doing well at all. And it was during that that the idea of creating a, a marketing platform for musicians to get gigs uh, came about, and then from that, Mad Mimi was born. So in other words, what came out of a disaster was, was a success. Absolutely, with, without a doubt. Right. Before we get to that, you also moved to Hawaii. Uh, how did you end up there, and why did you leave? Well, I, I was working a lot, and at, with Mad Mimi, we didn't get offices. We figured we would keep the whole team completely distributed and remote. And so I was working in coffee shops and I thought, I don't really love New York City. I'm not 
taking part in the New York City kind of lifestyle that, that people imagine. And I thought, why am I here? I'm, I'm in a crowded, noisy, smelly place that's too cold in the winter and too hot in the summer. And <laughs> I felt like learning to surf. So I, I turned to my wife one morning and I said, hey, let's, let's go to Hawaii. And uh, she's very patient and said, oh, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> sure, honey, no problem. Let's just go to Hawaii. Right. So, so we went to Hawaii. We found a place to live in and uh, we spent three years there. Wow. Uh, with with children or without children? Without kids, uh, it, which does make it easier. That's a nice honeymoon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's very cool. So, but you pursued a career in music first, right? Have you ever had any regrets that you didn't stick with music? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, it's something I've I've actually advised some other budding musicians recently, is that once I started moving away from trying to be a professional musician, the moment I, I stopped trying to earn my living, with music, I was actually able to enjoy being a musician a lot more. I was able to record whenever I wanted to because I could afford it. I was able to play the music that I was most passionate about rather than playing, you know, mediocre jazz standards at a wedding gig. So it, it was actually a lot, very liberating and it, it allowed me to feel a lot more like an artist rather than a, a sort of hired help musician. Mm, no, that's very insightful. Wow. But let's talk about Mad Mimi. So for the people who don't know what Mad Mimi is, can you explain what it does and, again, how you came up with the idea, I guess, to start it? Sure. Mad Mimi is an email newsletter platform. and there's, It's actually a fairly competitive space. But in a nutshell, businesses, bloggers, musicians, uh, everyone, almost every, everyone in the world in terms of uh, who has a venture of a sort sends a newsletter. And Mad Mimi is a platform that, makes creating a, a beautiful looking email newsletter super simple and super easy. And it does all the tracking to so you can know who clicked on which links. And it also handles the delivery aspects, make sure that anyone who wants to unsubscribe can do so on their own and uh, that your emails land in the inbox. Mm. And the, the way we came up with the idea was we were using competitors. We were using, uh, to, to promote our music production company, we were using MailChimp, probably. We were using Constant Contact at the time, actually. Uh, MailChimp hadn't come into their ascension just yet. And then Gary has has always been much more of an artist in terms of visual art than, than I was. And he started hand coding some newsletters. And then people started asking us to do that for them. And mm. so we thought, and, and all our friends were musicians. So we thought, fine, let's do a, a platform for musicians to book gigs, like a, like an email press kit. Yeah. And so part of it would be a, a way to send lovely looking newsletters or updates about your band. And at some point, the, a, a developer said, you know what? You have the makings to, to compete with Constant Contact and with MailChimp. So why not broaden your market? Mm. And it made sense. And it also meant we didn't have to invest a whole lot of money in building all the other musician-centric features like uh, gig databases and, and all this other stuff that that was in the initial idea. And we could launch with us as a simple email newsletter platform. So essentially you started with a niche. And you expanded out. Exactly. Although we expanded out of that niche before we ever launched. Mm, interesting. 
And you launched Mad Mimi in 2007 with no marketing, no funding, no outside investment. In fact, you, you mentioned you worked out of a coffee shop at the beginning and basically you built it to around quarter of a million customers sending out over 50 million emails a day. I mean, right. <laughs> how? <laughs> so we actually, we reached our first million dollars and our first $5 million in revenue with not $1 spent on any marketing or advertising. And that's insane. Uh, the way we did it is being nice. We were just nice to people. So every single new customer who signed up, we wrote a personal email to them and said, how can we help? And we would always keep an eye on on our customers' newsletters. And if we found a typo, we would fix it and let them know. And we were just really engaged with every customer. And it, it took a lot of time and it, it certainly was a big in effort investment. But what it what ended up happening is that people recommended us to their friends and people recommended us to, to others because it was easy to build a newsletter. And for people who didn't have a lot of experience in marketing, we would help them with their marketing strategies, would help them with their design. If, if someone didn't have a banner image, we would just create one for them. If someone's image was for free. Pixel, if, yeah, totally for free. If an image was pixelated, we would uh, download it, fix it and re-upload it and then tell them that we've done that for them. And so it, it all boils wow. down to just be nice. Let me ask you a question, Dean. Do you remember or do you recall what an average customer was worth to you? Uh, over, over a lifetime? Like, lifetime, yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm going to guess, and, and this is totally a guess, but... Yeah, it's just shoot in the breeze. Let's say roughly $250. Okay, so $250, which is a nice amount. Okay, I mean, it's not a, it's not a huge amount, no. which is great, which is, which is great, because this is going to prove my point even more. How can you put in so much effort on a personal basis to a client that's only really going to be worth about $250 lifetime value? I mean, at the end of the day, even if you put in an hour, two hours of your time, you've already like, you know, it's not worth it anymore almost, right? Sure. Uh, that, so the thing is, is that doesn't apply to every single customer. So for every customer you pour that energy into, they recommend two or three other customers Say two of them are self-starters and didn't need that additional help. So you're making a profit on that time if you want to calculate it that way. Right. To right. be to be totally candid, we didn't think about that. For for us, we were failed musicians. Our time was essentially valueless on day one. So, <laughs> so right, right. Um, we were ha every single customer that stuck around for another day or another month was validation that we were on the right track and whatever it takes. To, to keep that customer happy and recommending us was worth it. So you got to quarter of a million customers. How do you scale that, that personal service that you started out with? Were you able to keep it up? For sure. And, and today, we're still doing it. Well, we, I'm no longer with them, but the team is still doing it very, very, very well. Very, and, and in fact, they're doing it even better than, wow. than I was initially. And you can do it with a fairly small team. It's all about efficiency and, and kind of developing the processes. So we hired people who were excited about working with customers. We trained them very intensively in a, in a very... It was about 100 hours of training per customer support rep. We gave them the tools and taught them how to how to quickly help customers. So to to do a whole design for someone really ended up taking only about 15 minutes of time by the end because everyone was super experienced and and motivated to do that kind of help. And let's see, our team was about 26, 24 customer support reps 
who wow. uh, who were serving this 250,000 customers. And if they ever got behind, everyone else would jump in, whether it was the developers, the accountants who's doing the billing stuff. Everyone would jump in and, and help out on customer support if we got behind for an hour or two. Well, that's amazing. I mean, and so, some of your clients included huge names like Disney, AOL, StumbleUpon, Kellogg's, Air Canada, Facebook, amongst many others. How did you attract such big names? Uh, we didn't. We we put zero effort into attracting any big names. In fact, we we really always focused and preferred smaller accounts to to large accounts. Certainly not to detract from the joy of having an AOL sure. or a Disney use us, but they tended to find us through word of mouth, through um, their own discovery process, and signed up and, and enjoyed the ease of use. We, we really did not put any effort into the larger accounts. That's incredible. I mean, they say that email marketing is still today the most powerful form of marketing. Would you agree with that? 100%. It's, there is nothing that gives the same return on investment right now. It used to be for years something like $36 for every dollar spent average return. It's even higher these days. Uh, people have actually adjusted to interact more with email marketing. And, and I, I can't remember the exact stat, but it's certainly a majority of customers want to receive emails from businesses they like. Although that's the caveat, businesses they like. It's not any business, but if if a customer feels they have a relationship with a business or a blogger, they expect and want communication via email. Mm. How, how do you stay out of someone's spam box? That's always a big one. There's a few ways to do it, and the easiest and most obvious way to do it is don't be a spammer in that you're not <laughs> – buying email lists, you're not mm. sending junk that they didn't sign up for. So if someone signs up for, let's say, a coffee shop's newsletters, they don't want to get flyers for the supermarket down the road through some sort of uh, third-party partnership. What they want is news about the coffee shop, which baked goods are going to be there today uh, if there's an open mic night or something like that. People want relevant, valuable content. And if you mm. send valuable content to your direct subscribers, you will always avoid the spam filter. There's no magic tricks there. Your customers, your readers will open your email. That indicates to the ISPs that they want to receive your emails and you get a good reputation. That's all. So you would say absolutely do not buy any list. Never, ever, ever buy a list. It's a little bit, I don't know, outside of the United States, if um, countries have credit reports. But for any listeners who are in the U.S., if you send spam, it's, it's like having bad credit rating. It's nearly impossible to rebuild that reputation without a lot of effort and work and incremental fixes. So if you buy a list and you get flagged as a spammer, even if you're a flower shop who's, who's not selling Viagra ads and, and uh, <laughs> you know, Nigerian print schemes, <laughs> it, right. Once you're flagged as a spammer by the ISP or by a blacklist, it's extraordinarily difficult to rebuild your reputation. And the impact is can hurt even one-on-one -on -one emails to a customer for years to come. It's really wow. not worth it. Wow, wow. It's, I mean, it sounds worse than getting uh, sandboxed by Google. It is. It's, it's, it's almost the same thing. It's, it's, it's going to really wreck your ability to take advantage of the most effective marketing channel out there. And, and people think it's a quick fix. I'll buy a list 
and I will uh, email 100,000 people. And if I only get 1% to be customers, that will be enough. But the fact is, is you're only going to get 1% to even look at your email. And most of them are going to simply flag you as spam. The results are not worth the dollars spent on buying that list, let alone the long-term issues. This is very, very important. And I'll tell you one other thing I'd like to add to that as well is it's the same principle with buying Twitter followers, for example. You know, people think that they can cut corners and try, you know, it's, you know, go on Fiverr.com and spend $5 and buy 20,000 Twitter followers. You know, woohoo, look at me. Now I've got 20,000 followers. <laughs> it's not how you build the business. It's not how you build the following. And it's, it, it does the opposite. Rather than builds the business, it actually destroys your reputation. For sure. There's, it's a simple fact of life in business. There is no, no magic wand that you can wave and be an overnight success without years of hard work leading up to that. Mm. Now, I've also, by the way, I've read in many places that your email list is your most valuable asset. In fact, Jeff Walker, who wrote the book Launch, says that it's a license to print money. What would you say, though, are the best ways to get more subscribers? Because we just spoke about not buying lists. So that's don't buy lists. But OK, so how what's the fastest way, would you say, for people to to get more subscribers? Sure. So there's a few ways to do it. And it begins with everyone you know, and being slightly aggressive in asking for that email address. So you can't be passive in growing your email list. You can't slap up a form somewhere on your website and just hope people sort of stumble upon it. If you have a website, as soon as people visit your website, make sure that you make it easy for them to subscribe, you incentivize them to subscribe, use a pop-up, but anything to do to make sure that the first or second thing they do on your site is join your email list. It also starts with friends and family. Get everyone you know to opt in and subscribe to your email list. And, and you're going to start getting that feedback already. Every single customer you get, add them to your email list. By the way, um, although there is a little bit of dispute about this customers, uh, in most countries, you can legally add them to your email list, although it is polite to let them know or to ask them to join your email list when they become customers. Uh, but still, just grow it one by one with every interaction you have with a customer or potential customer. Ask them to join your email list. And it's uh, that's, that's really the most effective way. And by growing it in ones and twos, you're going to grow a valuable list growing it right. in in hundreds i've seen i've seen people who just sort of uh, wander through crowds collecting email addresses that's not a valuable list and because you don't have an engaged an engaged subscriber base so mm. if you use each interaction as an opportunity to to get that subscriber if you're a brick and mortar store every time someone walks into your store ask them to sign up for your email list but do it in a one-on-one -on -one basis and you're going to have an engaged list that's going to grow in an organic and reasonable manner. And that's okay because sending to a hundred engaged subscribers is far better than sending to 10,000 people who have no interest. Right. By the way, I discovered that on LinkedIn, you can actually pull out the data of all of your LinkedIn connections. And part of that is email. Right. Would you recommend someone to take all of their followers on LinkedIn and plug them into the email list? Do you think that's that's a so that's a tricky question because would I recommend someone to do that? No. Would I particularly fault someone for doing that? No, as well. However, there's a right way and a wrong way to do something like that. First of all, it's worth mentioning that that's not technically opt-in. So from that side of things, 
I don't think that that's really a best practice. Also, since they're not expecting to hear from you, since they don't often, I mean, I have, I have thousands of LinkedIn followers, mm-hmm. most of which probably have no idea about what I do on a day-to-day basis. So right. if I started sending them emails about teacup analytics, they're probably mm-hmm. going to have no idea why they're receiving that. So at best, I might recommend collecting those email addresses and slogging your way through it, asking people to sign up for your email list. But if you, if you consider, let's, let's assign a, a $10 value to an email because they may become a subscriber. They have that personal relationship. Is it worth $10 an hour for that potential? Or, or let's say not $10 an hour. 10, you can, you can write to 10 people in an hour. Let's say $100. Is it worth $100 an hour to, to cultivate that opportunity to build an engaged email list? I'd say yes. It seems like a headache and it takes a lot of time, but if you do it an hour a day for a couple of weeks, you'll get through it. Or, or, um, you know, you can find slightly different solutions there. So would I say right. use your LinkedIn list? Yes. Would I say spam them all at once? No. So in other words, one way you could do it, but I'm just thinking is you could send LinkedIn messages. So to all of your contacts, you would send a LinkedIn message saying, by the way, I'm sending out some interesting content about blah, blah, blah. Would you like to join? Here's my, here's my list uh, or here's a link to, to, to subscribe. Exactly. That could be, right. Can you share with our listeners some practical ways they can get better open rates and click-through rates? For sure. So the open rate, let's first start with the assumption that you're emailing people who asked to be on your list. That's the best way to get an open rate. You have to email people who want to receive your email. And then the second thing is it all begins with your subject line. Mm -hmm. So if your subject line is strong, you're going to get an increase in your open rate. And what makes a strong subject line? It's keeping it short, less than 10 words is, uh, is common. And keep in mind, though, all these studies that tell you seven to eight words and, and this and that, they're all, they're all a little bit of correlation to causation. It's, you have to test what works for you. But the common rules of thumb tend to be short, to the point, tell people what's inside the newsletter. So give them a preview. Don't be cute or funny if it's not mm-hmm. directly related to that uh, to the content because that only gives you short-term gains. Mm. Um, using a name in the subject line, it doesn't have to be the reader's name. It could be your name. It could be a company name, but a name in general that's recognizable tends to drive more, more views. And again, just always adding long-term value. So people expect and want to receive your newsletters is the is a foolproof way of maintaining that impressive open rate. Click-through rate, there's a little bit more science to that. Keep, mm. so my, my advice to get a, a good click-through rate is have only one call to action in a newsletter. Wow, that's new. I always thought you have to have multiple because you want to give, you know, more options. And No, options are paralyzing. Options, it, you know, let's, let's, let's put it like this. Each newsletter should have a single goal. Uh, you. By the way, can I just interrupt you a second, Dean? Sure. You're saying the word newsletter. Yeah. When I hear the word newsletter, my eyes like fold over backwards because it's so it bores the hell out of me <laughs> to receive a newsletter. Like I don't send out newsletters. I send out emails like, "Hey, Sally, this is what I'm up to." Whatever. Like a newsletter just sounds so old school. I mean, are you just using the word because that's the term that you used to? Exactly. One one could say promotion. One could say uh, email blast. One could say email in general. But I say newsletter to distinguish between a personal. Email uh-huh. and a bulk email, if you will. Oh, okay. So when someone sends 
a bulk email. Having, having one call to action, or let's, let's put it this way, having a goal that you want that email to achieve, a single goal, and then making sure that you have a single strong call to action, where even if it's three different links that they could click in the email, as long as they all lead towards achieving that one goal, that's what makes us, that, that's what increases your click through rate. Interesting. I always saw, because when I get emails from, from various other, you know, let's say gurus in inverted commas, yeah. Yeah, experts, they always put like at least three links. In fact, they even put in a PS. If you haven't seen the link, here is the freaking link. Right. <laughs> so there must be something to it. I mean, at the end of the day to have, I guess, a spread of links, but I guess... I disagree. I, I ran a lot of tests on this and your okay. first link in a longer, let's say you have five different topics, you know, like a, a featured post and then five other news items in a in an email. Uh, your first link gets a third of all clicks. Mm. Then your second link gets a third of that amount of your first link. Okay. So so it's a third less. Then your third link gets even less than that, and then all the other links just you know, little dribbles of, of clicks. So your first, the, the, the most prominent above the fold top, top, top link is really the only one that matters. The, in, in all the tests I've done, the links at the bottom, we're talking single digit amounts of clicks for large lists, even, even lists over the, over a hundred thousand views. Wow. Uh, it's really, your click through rate is low. Or everyone's click-through rate is about uh, two to five percent of their open rate. So we're we're down into small numbers now. Why spread out the those clicks when you have a goal that you need done? If it's to sell a an ebook, why give them five other blog posts they could look at? Send them to the place to buy that ebook and give them a reason to buy that ebook, and you will sell more of that ebook. Okay, but let me just one more sort of thing here. I, I mean, if I'm putting in a link at the top of the email, okay? You're reading the email, but you're scrolling down because you want to read the rest of the email. Why would I make you scroll back up to have to click the link when I could just put the link at the bottom there again so that you can then... Right, right, right. I do see what you're saying. So so let me clarify. When I say single call to action, I mean the single call to buy the ebook. Whether you have a link... Uh-huh. Um, so the link at the top will get 99% of your clicks. Sure, there's, there's, not, there's nothing lost by adding another link at the bottom to buy that ebook. But what most people uh-huh. do is they add another link at the bottom to do something else. And they add a link uh, in the okay. middle to go read uh, last week's blog post. And they add another link here for another product. And they try and give their options. You should have one goal for your newsletter and everything should work towards making it easy for your reader to achieve that goal. Mm. And how often should someone be sending out an email to their list? That's, that's a really hard question. Let's, let's start with a minimum. I would say once a month. What? Oh, oh, minimum. Minimum, okay. yes. Minimum. Uh, once a month is a good minimum to begin with. And then there's a mathematical way to figure out what the ideal is. And it comes down to unique versus repeat views and clicks. So let's say you get 100, 100 views in, in your monthly newsletter. When you mm-hmm. increase that, that frequency to weekly, you're now sending four times to every one time you previously sent. And now you're getting 
50 unique views. That still is 200 views rather than 100 unique views in your once a month. So people tend to freak out and they say, oh, well, once a month I would get 100 views. Weekly I'm getting 50 views. But it doesn't work there because it adds up. So it's it, the answer to how frequently someone should send, it, it's partially what what's comfortable for you to maintain consistently. It's also partially what you want per newsletter as your, your general engagement, and then partially your total unique clicks in a month that you want. Hmm. Do you think that building an email list is more valuable than, let's say, building up a list of Twitter or LinkedIn followers? 100%. I think there's, for me, there's no doubt. Uh, LinkedIn and Twitter and any social media is, first of all, consider Facebook, LinkedIn, and now Twitter recently, they, they're deciding what's relevant for you right now. Mm. And how many times do you see something on Facebook, Facebook reloads and it's gone? You don't remember which person it was that posted something. It's, mm-hmm. it's a stream. Social media is a stream with things floating down it right <laughs> past you. Whereas the inbox, it, every single thing needs an investment from that reader. It requires that reader to look at it, either open it, or delete it. And that means that they actually genuinely have that that binary choice to engage with you or not. In social media, you're basically just screaming into a crowd and hoping enough of the crowd hear you over the other people screaming into the crowd. It's like there's there's just there's less opportunity for people to engage with you Mm. in social media, whereas email, it's a one-on-one interaction every time. So really, I think maybe, I mean, would you agree with this? Maybe the goal should be to build a following on social media so that it's a you build a platform to get them to sign up to your email. There are, look, there to you know to clarify my my disparagement of social media. They yeah. ultimately they're all complementary. You're exactly right. You can use your email list to drive more social engagement. You can use your your social following to. Yeah drive more engagement with your emails. They each serve different purposes. You're always going to sell more from an email than you are going to sell from, from posting a link on, on LinkedIn. But what you can do by engaging regularly in social is increase the likelihood that people will engage with your emails and vice versa. Right. So they complement each other. They're not in direct competition. But if you had $100 uh, or let's say $100 worth of energy, I wouldn't put it in social. I would put it into into email every time. Wow. You ended up selling Mad Mimi to GoDaddy in 2014 for $42 million. Can you take us back to the day when they made that offer? What was going through your mind? <laughs> so, you know, it's, I, I feel like I should have this, this big moment to, to share there. But honestly, <laughs> it... it Never felt like it was such a big deal because there was always something pressing a customer to work with, a day of work to get through. There was negotiation and it was slow and it was peaceful and it was pleasant and it was fair. And there was really no big battle to get to that point. Everything just sort of naturally progressed. And because of this natural progression, there wasn't a defining moment where you know, my jaw hit the the floor when I heard this offer. It was a case of they chatted, we we said what we wanted, they said what they wanted, sort of agreement was tentatively reached, they disappeared for a while. But oh. we didn't we didn't ever seek to be acquired. We didn't look for an exit. So there was there was no stakes involved. You know, there was no 
ultimatum for us internally. So if it fell through, it fell through. We'd continue being as successful as we we were already more successful than we dreamed we would be. So the acquisition was done not for money. It was done because by partnering with GoDaddy, Mad Mimi could reach more people. Wow. And that was the, that was the impetus, but it was the impetus to say, well, we lose ownership. This creation we had could reach more people, could grow bigger. And that was far more rewarding than the dollar amount. And of course, it's easy to say from this side of things, but, but the reality is on a month to month basis, I was very happy before the acquisition and after the acquisition. So there wasn't a defining, uh, a defining moment that the day we sold and signed the papers, all my energy and focus was on reassuring Mad Mimi's customers that they would continue getting the support they love. And, you know, I, wow. we never even celebrated. To this day, wow. we still haven't actually celebrated. Let's go. Let's, <laughs> let, let's go out. Let's celebrate. <laughs> yeah, I, I think at one point, somewhere around two in the morning, I went to a bar here in Tel Aviv and I, I had a beer alone quietly and then went back and I got <laughs> a couple more emails. That was it. Wow, that's incredible. Now, some people might be listening to this thinking, wow, this guy started a company and seven years later sold out for tens of millions of dollars. I'll never be able to do that. What would you say to them? It's easy. Uh, It's easier than you think, right? Like it comes down to this. Ideas that have value are not so hard to to sell if you're disciplined and if if you're willing to put in the energy and risk and and effort. There's there's like a, a few... Let me see how I can put this. This works in my head. So I'm saying it out loud for the first time, really. If your business helps other businesses make money, you're going to be okay. I I don't know much about consumer products. So, you know, if you're trying to launch a new social network, I I can't tell you if it's going to be successful or not. But if you help that coffee shop down the street make more money or run their business better, it's not, uh, it, it, it's likely that you will be successful. Hmm. If you make, I'll put it like this, if you make other people successful, you'll be successful. Nicely put. What was it like waking up the next morning? Ah, you know what, actually, you basically have, have said it wasn't, there was no difference. I mean, but did, I guess in a way, did you feel empty the next morning? Did you, hmm. like, what did you do? You know, that's a really good question. If I remember right, I went surfing. <laughs> why not so i i no, i didn't feel empty i think i think it it led to a little bit of uh a buzz but it was a very low undercurrent of a buzz it was it was like okay we've done it but i i didn't actually think at the time that i would leave and start a new business i'd wanted to and the business the teacup was already under development for a while but Uh I always imagined doing them sort of simultaneously rather than separate. And so the next morning, my feelings were, right, let's buckle down. Let's keep answering these customer emails. Let's let's <laughs> hit our milestones. Let's go. Let's grow this. Let's be bigger than MailChimp. Well, hold on a second. But you had no part of it. You sold out. So why do you care about being involved in the company and trying to build it more? Well, part of it is... The reason we sold, we we didn't sell because we wanted a paycheck. We sold because that was the opportunity right. to be mm-hmm. bigger than than Mailchimp and to be bigger than Constant Contact. Whether we'll reach that, uh, whether they'll reach that, is a is a whole nother 
story, I think, and, and you know, there's, there's many years part, to go. Gene, part, part two. Right, right, exactly. So the thing is, is that at, there was never any question that I would continue trying to make sure that it would be successful after the sale. It's, it's the points of pride. It's, it's something, it's something that, that I could point to and say, you see that? Instead of reaching a quarter of a million of pe- a quarter of a million people, it's now reaching five million people. Wow! By the way, Dean, I noticed you love running and surfing. Do you prefer your feet on the ground or on a, <laughs> on a surfboard? Or on a surfboard? Right. Um, <laughs> I'd say running. I'm a trail runner, so definitely prefer running in the forest or the desert or anywhere in nature for sure. So I. It, it hurts to say it on Sunday, I had to give up beautiful waves to go running because I, I, my training program required the run. So I'll pick running over surfing anytime. You have a training program? Yeah, I'm training for the Jerusalem Marathon in a couple of weeks. And, and Sunday was my last very long run before the marathon. How long was that? Uh, 21 miles. Holy cow. <laughs> 21, you ran 21 miles? Yes. Whoa. That's impressive. Did you think it helps in business to 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 stay fit? I mean, it's an obvious question in a way, but I guess like, have you seen a, ma- a major difference if, if you were to take a week off from running or off from surfing? Have you ever had like a week where you haven't done those activities and it's affected your work week? For sure. It happens now and then where I get too wrapped up in work and I deprioritize health and I start eating pizza while staring at my computer screen instead of going for that run or, or getting to the beach. And on the, in the moment, it feels like it's an okay choice. But by the end of the week, I feel burnt out and um, demotivated to continue. And I begin to question the decisions I made. So having that break is is really important. It's, it doesn't necessarily have to apply to everyone. If, if people have kids, it's, it's another focus. It's, you need to defocus from work every day. Mm. For, for some amount of time. Right, right. And for me, it's the defocus. Got it. You just launched a new business called Teacup Analytics. Can you explain what it does and why you came up with this idea? Sure. Teacup Analytics simplifies Google Analytics for people who are not analysts, who are not analytically inclined. And, and what's special about it, there's, there's two really special aspects about Teacup. And the first is that most people, when they look at analytics, they just see numbers and percentages and, and dimensions and just noise. So what we did is we worked with the top analysts and we said, fine, what questions should people ask of their data? And then let's present them the answers. So everything is done in a Q&A format. Where did my new visitors come from? Here's where they came from. And By the way, just very briefly, for those that don't know what Google Analytics is, do you want to briefly just explain that? Sure. Google Analytics is an analytics platform that you can just add a little snippet of code to your website and it tracks everything audience related, where your visitors are coming from, where they're going to, how long they spent on your site. One of the most valuable aspects is it tells you if people are reaching your goals. So if you set a newsletter subscriber as your goal, They'll tell you how many visitors hit that goal or right. sales. It's a, it's a great way to really understand your website audience. 
And Teacup basically just helps you to, to, to dig out the data that you need. Exactly. Google Analytics was never designed for a small business. It was designed for large advertisers, actually. So it's a lot of data. It's, it's complex to, to find the data. It requires a lot, of, a lot of native knowledge, if you will. And it's also something like 70% of all websites in the world use Google Analytics. And I'll bet you not even 1% use it to its full capacity. So I I noticed with Mad Mimi that a lot of our customers would ask us questions about Google Analytics because when you have a really responsive support team, people start asking you questions about online marketing in general. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that almost daily we'd get Google Analytics questions and how do I find this data? Or I sent out a newsletter. How do I see if the people who came to my site were, you know, did things that I wanted them to, to do? And so the idea came from that is, is that people were telling me that they needed answers from Google Analytics. And, you know, the obvious one is how am I doing with uh, the traffic that comes to my site via my email newsletters? Mm-hmm. And that's a very common question for Mad Mimi. And so I thought, fine, let me see how I can answer that best. And and so thus the idea was born. So essentially, you're not competing with Google. You're just providing a service to complement what Google Analytics does, right? Exactly. So right. Uh, what, what Teacup does is take all the data and crunch it for you. So we tell you, we look at your history. We look at your current performance, the whole picture. We look at the, the, the really the, the big picture and we calculate the value of, of each channel. We calculate the value of your organic search traffic. We calculate the, the value of your direct traffic or your email traffic. And so we can say, based on your performance, based on your site history, based on your unique interactions with your audience, these are your best channels and these are your underperforming channels. And then one of the other special things we do is if you do want to take action on something that you figured out, we track and see if that action made a statistically significant difference. Mm. Are you hoping for Google to buy you out one day? No, I'm not. I'm hoping that, (laughs) you know, it's the obvious question is, is Google the one to buy a product like Teacup? And I don't think so. I think companies that work with small businesses would find more value from Teacup than Google. That, that's just my theory. I could be wrong. Maybe Google will disagree with me and make an offer sometime. But I also, I'm not building it for the exit. I actually think that there's a lot more potential that we can do based on the data and based on the current concepts. So in, in two or three years, I'm pretty sure Teacup Analytics will look nothing like it does today. Would you say that people should be building businesses with the goal to one day be bought out by one of the big boys in their space? You know, that's tricky. Venture capitalists will tell you yes. But <laughs> I say I say probably all things considered, build a business that's valuable, that will be valuable to you if it's not acquired, valuable to your customers day to day and valuable to a potential acquirer. But you have no guarantee that one of the five businesses that could possibly buy you for tens of million dollars ever will even hear of you. So why build a business with with this lottery ticket style exit strategy? If you build a business that's going to be profitable on a day-to-day basis, you're going to put your kids through college, you're going to put food on your table, you're going to pay for your vacation. Right. That's enough. 
and and you can grow that and grow that and grow that, and then you can take a managerial role. You, there's other exits. Let me put it like this: there's, there there are plenty exits that don't require selling your company to one of the the limited finite amounts of companies with the bank balance to buy you. Right. What would be your most practical advice for those listening who want to start and grow a successful business? Uh, talk to a lawyer. Talk. Are you joking? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no. no. Uh, I am, my attorney is my hero. He's, he's really made sure that things are done in the right way. And if you have that right start, you're going to avoid nasty surprises. So there's a, look, there's a few practical things that you need to do to start a business. And the, a lot of people these days try and avoid the business plan. They skip the business plan. I don't think you should ever skip a business plan. Even if no one else will see it, I think it's a reality check that everyone should do. And in fact, I update my business plan monthly because it allows me to, to choose my next steps wisely based on successes and failures. Uh, am I meeting the goals? No. Time to adjust. Am I meeting them? Yes. Let's, let's put more energy into this. Mm-hmm. And then really you can't, you can't get away from good advice. And that's advice from an accountant, from an attorney, from people who have been there before. And you don't have to take their advice, but you have to hear it. And that's, that's important. But really I, I'm a big believer in, in incorporate with an attorney, ask an attorney for any advice. They often find things that you didn't know would be problems. So I'm, I'm a believer in attorneys. What's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Uh, email me at dean at teacupanalytics.com. That's definitely the, the best way to get in touch with me anytime. Okay, perfect. I'm going to put that in my show notes. Dean, this has been inspirational, practical, and hugely entertaining. Thanks so much for letting me pick your brain. Thank you to all my fellow listeners for tuning in. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.